Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. What is Morgan Harris over at Cork Buzz pairing with his Thanksgiving dinner? So, the Thanksgiving meal is complicated. There are many flavors. There are stuffings. There are turkeys. Cranberry. Cranberry sauces. Oh, cranberry sauces. <laughs> Maybe just cranberries. Also, that thing with mushrooms and chestnuts that my mom always makes. Um, but the point is, you have a f- oh yams. You also have yams with marshmallows. Oh, what is That's that? every sommelier's nightmare to pair yams and marshmallows. Sauterne, uh, sauterne. That's probably might be the answer. <laughs> Who knows for sure though? So you get all this food on the table, right? That is delicious and really makes a you lot, full. A lot of food. Tons uh, of food. Like problem amounts of food. An amount of food that would probably give you. The diabetes. Not the livabetes, but the diabetes. The sugar. So the answer, you need something that will sustain you, that will be refreshing, that will um, energize you towards eating a lot. Bubbles are always kind of the ultimate answer for me in some ways. Uh, I don't mind spending a little bit of money for kind of slightly fancy bubbles. You know, a, a good girl champagne at, at $35 to $40 retail, I think, would always be appreciated. But we can drink some Cremant, too. Uh, Are you a little biased towards champagne? I do uh, enjoy a champagne from time to time. From time. Not just every single night of your life? Maybe also that. <laughs> I try to put some to my face on a regular basis. So you're drinking grower champagne with turkey. Well, we could do that. There are many options with turkey, though. It's such a diverse meal. Uh, I think for me with Thanksgiving, always the, the wines of Alsace have occupied a special place, right? Because you've got, they also eat a lot of like pork fat and potatoes and they, they have a hearty cuisine there and therefore their, their wines are aligned towards that. Um, <laughs> so that's wonderful. Also, fancy Beaujolais, not regular Beaujolais, but I'm talking the sort. The Crusoe? Yeah, oh yeah, well, yes, the Crusoe Beaujolais. Uh, one of them named, like me, Morgan and Morgan. Um, <laughs> long a nickname of mine. Uh, the Crusoe Beaujolais for me are, they're part of my food pyramid. Uh, they're that corner down there on the bottom and the right. They are just so affordable and so pretty and beautiful and reliable. Uh, you know, you can spend uh, around 20 to $30 a bottle retail, and you know you're going to get something that's uh, fresh, tart, 
um, and uh, has lots of delicious, crunchy red and blackberry fruit to go with your uh, all your delicious foods that you have there on the table. But I think for me, you know, the byword is something that's going to refresh you, that's going to invigorate you, that's going to keep you in the game, it's going to keep you eating. Uh, something that you're going to want to drink pretty continuously because, you know, you're hanging out with your relatives. So you might want to be, as the French would say, chifasse. Um, I don't know what that means. Chifasse. Just that I don't spell know. it for yourself. In French, chifasse is spelled S-H-I-T-F-A-C-E. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I kind of don't mind Beaujolais or um, uh, what you call it, Zinfandel. <laughs> That's what I mean. But you just said Zinfandel. I no, heard I, you. I did. Sommeliers like some sommeliers like Zinfandel. A lot of sommeliers like Zinfandel secretly. It's a it is a hidden secret of ours. Um, but only some Zinfandel, only the good ones. Yes, storybook. Also, there's a lovely one from Chris Brockway from his Antic Wine Company label, uh, which kind of tastes more like Pinot Noir. Zinfandel, very complicated grape. It ripens evenly across its clusters. Nobody really knows what's going on with it. It's kind of complicated. So, Morgan, will you join me in song? Morgan is pairing this grape with turkey. Morgan is pairing this grape with turkey. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand
And we're here with Jordan Salcido. Hello. Hi. Wine director of the Momofuku Group. Nice to have you on the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. So uh, where are you from? I'm from Colorado. And you grew up there, but your dad was from the East Coast? He was. He was born in Waterbury, Connecticut. How did that um, affect the family stories? How did that affect the family stories? Okay, so he grew up, he was the youngest of five, or he and his twin sister were the youngest of five um, in a big Italian family. So, you know, like the uncles and the aunts lived upstairs and next door and all that. Um, But my dad's dad used to make wine in his basement and they grew grapes in the backyard. They did not make wine from those grapes. My grandmother would make a grape tart from those grapes, but... Um, there was, I guess he, my grandfather used to get grapes from California that would be shipped in from Lodi on the Zephyr train. Oh yeah. And those trains they bring in from the East coast. Exactly. And, uh, so he would make what was probably really bad wine in the basement. And one of my dad's favorite stories. So my, the other thing is that my dad's dad died when my dad was 13. So my dad doesn't have so many memories of his dad, at least not that he shares, but this is, this is really the one that he does share and the one that he really talks about fondly. And um, so one of his jobs with his twin sister is that they would go down and they would skim, you know, during fermentation, the sort of the bubbles occur and and some some there's some stuff that needs to be skimmed off. And so his job was to be the skimmer of the stuff on the uh, on the basement wine. But uh, yeah, that was a. I think a thing that held a lot of nostalgia for him, and that's really the only memory that, or the only connection that I know of um, to my to my grandfather on my dad's side. Eventually, you ended up moving to New York and, and working in a publishing deal. How did that all come about? Oh, okay. Well, I moved to New York with hopes of working in a, a publishing deal. So I moved to New York right after college, and during college, I studied you know, literature and philosophy. And, um, and I thought I would just move to New York because actually I had been with my family and my dad had wanted us to see the city and I knew that I always wanted to live there. And I didn't know at the time that it's good to have a game plan when you move to New York. It's, it's always better to have a game plan than just sort of moving and figuring it out, um, at least for me. So I moved here and, um, and I got this day job that was like through a publishing contact, um, but at night... Um, is when I started working in restaurants. Um, and then I moved back to Denver, um, let's see, after one year of, of living in New York and sort of doing the, the day thing at first and then and then restaurants full on. Um, and I started writing for the Denver Post and for a magazine called 5280 as the sort of cheap eats food person. How'd that come about? Um, how did that come about? Okay, so rewinding a tiny bit to that first year in New York, Um, I worked first at a restaurant called Topo and started there as a hostess just to sort of make money. And then I kept getting promoted because other people kept leaving. And, um, and so I got to, that was really, it seems good when it's happening. Yeah, it does seem good when it's happening unless you are, you know, I was 21 and had zero experience in management. So that's, it was just sort of like this amazing opportunity to get to, um, see a little taste of, of the restaurant world in New York. And I think, um, at least from my, from my experience, there are sort of, if you had to divide restaurants into two camps, you have the sort of, um, well, no, let me dial that back. The, the Topo was a different kind of restaurant than restaurants I've been really lucky to work in since then. Um, but Topo was, it was a, 
family-run operation, um, but it wasn't the best managed place. There were a lot of interesting stories um, from that place, but for me it was great because I I got to organize these wine tastings. Um, so that was really the first exposure to wine, but it wasn't the best environment for learning. The The place was actually sort of going under and there was alcoholism and domestic abuse and all these things that you hear about. Um, they all were at that restaurant. Um, and that's what you bring to the picture or? No, oh, okay, no, I'm just no. double checking. No, 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 no. Uh, I would like to hope not. No, it was just, you know, you're, you land somewhere and you sort of, you sort of say, huh, this is, this is that side of life that you read about, but you don't, it's not you usually the life that you are you are part of um and so that was that was interesting but uh there was a cook named fran derby and, and um and he said hey i'm going to open this new restaurant called wd50 and you should really come with me to to do that because it's going to be amazing and so i took his advice and i applied for a hostess position there and um and started working at wd50 as a hostess while the restaurant was opening and it was it was the completely opposite kind of thing because you have this chef and he is so focused, but he's also so creative. And it was, for me, this this big wake-up moment um, where I was lucky to be in an environment with such inspiration and so many, um, yeah, so so much access to um, to information and to these incredible people. And so that was the moment where I said, all right, this is the world that I want to be part of. This is a viable career path. Um, but I, but I need more experience. And that's when I moved back to Denver thinking that what I could bring to the table was, you know, an in, um, a more, I guess a more, um, thoughtful approach to what I felt like was being offered on the food writing scene in Denver at the time. Um, cause it was, Denver's a completely different place now and it's, it's really amazing to see where, where it's come. But at the time, um, the person who was writing about, um, food for one particular publication, um, didn't necessarily have a background in the restaurant industry or, or, um, and I felt like that was something that I could bring. And, uh, so I, I wrote a writing sample about a couple of the dishes at WD50 and I sent them to a couple of publications and was hired at one of them freelance and um and then I went to culinary school as well and the way that New York happened is I once you leave New York so I left New York after the first year when my lease was up but I felt like there was still more to do in New York or that I you know there's just this energy and there's this passion and there's this this electricity in New York that I I don't know exists too many other places or at least not that I've ever been to and I wanted to be able to give back to New York in the way that I felt like New York had given to me at some point and so um so during culinary school you have to go and cook somewhere to get your culinary degree and so I um, that was sort of a perfect moment to get to go and, and head back to New York. Oh, okay. Um, so I staged at a few places. I got to stage at Gramercy Tavern. I I've heard to, of that place. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Um, where else? La Bernadette, which was also great and just a completely different sort of vibe. And then, um, Danielle and Danielle, it was that Danielle was, you had to stage there for three days. If you were going to stage, you had to stage for three days to make sure that you were going to be compatible with that kind of environment. And um, and that was a place that I fell in love with immediately and made some friendships there just during those three days. And um, 
So I had that to sort of look forward to, but I felt like the thing that I would probably be doing was I would probably need to get some experience at a great restaurant like Danielle, um, but that I would really be writing and that that would be the best way that I could contribute. And so I had um, been in contact, I had reached out to um, a woman at a publication that I, I had the utmost respect for and I had reached out to her and she had agreed to meet with me. So we met a couple of different times throughout, I guess, that year that I was in Colorado. And um, and she had offered to, um, no, she just, she had, she had sort of started to take on this mentorship role, which was amazing. And, um, and she had, had promised that one of my articles would get published. And so we were going that route. And then all of a sudden, like the week before it was supposed to be published, I got an email and it said, um, oh, actually, we're not going to publish that piece, but you know, thanks so much. And, uh, and I had been talking to her about some other article ideas at the time. Um, I guess, let's see. Yes. So I had been talking to her about some other article ideas, mainly from when I was staging in those kitchens. Um, and, uh, she, she wanted more information about one of them. And then anyway, I didn't hear back from her. I didn't really think that much about it. Moved to New York and started cooking in the kitchen at Danielle, which was the most wonderful job. It's, this complete amalgamation of every kind of culture. And, um, and I think the kitchen is where it's at, at that restaurant, you know, I mean, you know, because we, we met there, but, um, everyone's nickname was the country where they're from and any given day. I mean, one day you, you get asked if you want to stay late and then it's that game dinner with every, every headliner chef is in the private room and, you know, they, I think what Anthony Bourdain talks about that that dinner, but that kind of thing happened all of the time. And uh, and it, and then there was um, a day. Let's see, it was like a Sunday. I remember I was walking around on a Sunday, and I got a phone call from my dad, and he said, "Hey, um, did you see the, this publication's particular headline article? It was like a seven-page article, and it was the article that I had um, proposed to this person." Um, and with the examples that I'd used and the chefs that I had mentioned, and, and it was, it was really a wake up call because it was on one hand, it was so heart wrenching and it was for like a week. And then, <clears throat> and then, it, and then it wasn't anymore. And it was actually this amazing gift because it was sort of like, all right, here are your two options right now. You've, you've been doing all this work thinking that you want to go this direction. And meanwhile, here you are in this world that, that, that you're so lucky to be part of. And that is such an incredible um, and fulfilling and engaging life um, and, and space to learn. And so that was, it was a, a great moment of sort of not looking for what you think you want, but actually paying attention to where you are and, and learning from that. What was your first meeting with Danielle, the, the person? My first meeting with Danielle, the person. Okay. So, um, I mean, I had seen him, of course, because he was always at the restaurant. But the first time that we ever had a conversation, um, like a real conversation, was after. So, all right. So in, when you work in the kitchen at Danielle and you're the stagiaire, usually you start downstairs as the pasta person. And so you're, you're making a lot of um, tomato confit and you're, you're dealing with the downstairs world, which is a completely separate world from, um, from the upstairs world. And you know, when you're downstairs, it's great because you have an understanding of sort of 
all the major steps that go into the the smaller steps upstairs. But um, I think I had just been promoted to canapes. And um, and I went to a, a cookbook shop. So there are a couple of amazing cookbook shops in the city, um, Kitchen Arts and Letters up on in the 90s on Lexington, and then another one called Bonnie Slotnick Cookbooks, which deals mainly with older cookbooks that are out of print. So I had gone to Bonnie Slotnick Cookbooks the Sunday before, and, um, and I found this book, I think it was called Great French Chefs. And, um, and I brought it with me that, that night. And the other thing is uh, at the end of the night, um, pastry puts up all of the desserts that it, that, uh, that are left over from that service. And there was this one dessert called the apple lasagna. And it was, um, it was these like wafer thin caramelized slices of apple and just layered on top of it, one another and then baked with a little bit of sugar and you bit into it. And it was like, it's like a pillow of apple. And I, so I would have one of those every night. So I went up to have my apple lasagna and Danielle walks in and I have my book and he, and he's, he's so generous with his time, which is the other thing that I think just defines him as well as, you know, his quest for excellence and all that. But, um, so he sees me and he sees me with this book and he said, who are you and what's this book? And I said, oh, um, I'm Jordan. I'm your I work on canapes and I'm your bass rapper right now. So that was the other part of the canapé station is when you were the new person on canapes, you had to also wrap the black bass popiette. Which was a signature dish at that time. Exactly. And the way that that happens, so it sounds much simpler than it is, it actually involved one person from the canapé station sprinting back to this little station with a meat slicer behind the fish station, I would say about an hour after service, because that's when the fish orders start coming in. And, um, and it was your job to wrap this, this um, carved piece of black bass in these potato scales. But the potatoes oxidize easily, and so they had to be wrapped many, many different times. So once this, the potato scales started oxidizing, you had to throw out those potatoes and rewrap the bass with the clarified butter in it. And it involved, it was like a, this very very involved process of applying the right amount of pressure with these with you know part of your hand and then weaving these making sure that the exact uh that the scales were sliced exactly to the right thickness and that they were the right starch content and all of that um so i was and i had just gotten good at it because it, you know it always takes a few days and at first you're very bad and then you mess up service and it's a disaster so i'd just gotten good at this and uh i was explaining that that's what i was up to and um, and he flips through this book and he sees this uh, this dish by Paul Bocuse. So there's a photo of Paul Bocuse with this rouge with potato scales. And he gets very excited and he starts pointing to this dish and explaining how the black bass popiette comes from or derived from that exact dish. Um, the other thing about Daniel is he had just walked in with a bottle of wine. He had a bottle of wine with him because he was in the lounge saying hello to some friends. And that wine was a 1978 Jaboulet La Chapelle. Pretty good wine. Pretty good wine. And he asked me if I liked wine and I said yes. And he grabs a glass. So now, like, as we're looking at the cookbook, I'm drinking a glass of 1978 Jaboulet La Chapelle with Daniel. And he is going through and then he starts tracing back his whole story of how he uh, the you know the travels that he took when he when he cooked with Bocuse and how Bocuse had, had sort of offered his own kitchen as a space for Danielle to learn and experiment before he started his own restaurant 
And it was this incredible moment of feeling connected in some way to this lineage of um, of incredible chefs that that goes back you know, several generations, and there really is there really is so much context and so much um, intention in everything that goes on, and, and it was very special to be part of that. But it was also really amazing that 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 Danielle was willing to spend that much time with somebody who is a uh, a stagiaire in his kitchen for you know a short amount of time when so many people like that come and go. And I think that that speaks to who he is as a person. And it it was another moment of just making me feel like I had made the right decision. And how long were you working in the kitchen? I worked in the kitchen about six months. So like the duration of the culinary externship. And then I was offered a job to stay on in the kitchen. Um, But the, uh, the, so my last event but the last thing that I got to do while in the kitchen was um, cook with Danielle at an event called La Palais de Neige. Sure, the one in Aspen. The one in Aspen. And this was the first one in Aspen, and Daniel Jonas was amazing and and, um, and encouraged that. And so I got to go cook with Danielle, and then that it, it was a much smaller event, and Aspen's event is always smaller than New York or New San York Francisco. or San Francisco. It's quite a bit more intimate yes. as, a, as a size. Exactly. I think there are maybe 30... 30 attendees as opposed to several hundred. Um, but I got to spend the weekend with these Burgundian winemakers. And there was Christophe Rumier and Dominique Lafon and um, Jean-Marc Rouleau and Alix de Monti and just Jean-Pierre Desmet. Uh, so a great group of people. And um, and Danielle, Danielle was so good. And I, he could tell that I was very alive and that, you know, it was very special to be drinking these wines and learning about them and before the play I read everything I could about about these people but you know that's another I mean I think the there's a similar um there's a similar appreciation for context and for history and for intention um in those wineries the way that there is in in um a great kitchen like Danielle but uh so Danielle um was really encouraging and uh and he he said, you know, it seems like what you want to do is work harvest. And um, and it was something that I'd thought about, uh, but I wasn't sure the right way to approach it. And he said, here's what we should do. <laughs> Figure out who you want to work harvest with. And then you and I will stand together and uh, and you'll ask. And and I bet it'll work out that way. And that, that happened. I asked uh, Jean-Pierre Desmet if, if I could work harvest with him that year. And he said, Usually, you know, we don't take stagiaires this this late up, but you know, I I know that uh, I know that you'll work hard, and um, yes, we can figure that out. And so, I wanted to explore that route more, and I had asked a few people who I respected a lot, sort of what the best way, um, what the best way of learning about wine was, but I wasn't sure I wanted to commit to the. Being a sommelier, you know that word was so intimidating. So you know, how do you how do you go about doing that, or how do you know if that's right for you? And it seemed like harvest was a great um, a great opportunity. But um, I also wanted to um, learn the entire. I wanted to learn from the ground up of what what that would entail. And service is obviously a good place to start. And so um, I took a job as a busboy at Danielle. And stayed there in the front of the house in the dining room for a year. So busboy, back waiter, front waiter, lounge server. What was the difference between front and the back of the house for you? Oh, let's see. So different. So different. I mean, I think being, I mean, for me, 
For me, the inspiration, most of the inspiration was in the kitchen. That's where the creativity is happening. That's where you're, it was, it's a different, and also it's, it's structured, but with this um, eye towards creativity, whereas in the front of the house, in the dining room, that's not what it's about. You are, you are executing, um, it's just a completely different mindset. So I think one thing that was very exciting was seeing where all that food goes and seeing um, how it's presented and how it's prepared. And, and there were really exciting pieces on both ends. I mean, I got to meet you in the dining room, for example, and you uh, taught me how to study wine. You gave me brilliant advice, which was um, <laughs> when you are studying a region, you need to read about the region and you need to drink wines from that region. So do those things together. And it's advice that I've given a lot of other people along the way. I think I stole it from somebody, <laughs> but there's a lineage to that. There is. It was actually Bocuse who told me. Right. So it's, it's got a long, long history. Smart guy, Bocuse. Um, let's see. What so else? what, uh, what happened after Danielle? After Danielle, what happened? Okay, was, harvest happened. But the other thing about Danielle that we have to we have to talk about yeah. Bernard for a oh, moment. That's true, we do. Because he's a good guy. He's the best. He really is. I miss him a lot. Where'd he go? Oh. No, I just mean I don't see him as much as right. I when I used to work with him. <laughs> that's fair. Um, okay, where after Danielle? So Veritas for a little while as a captain, which was which was cool. I got to work with Tim Kopeck and Patrick Capiello and Yoshi Takamura. Those were great people to learn from, obviously. Um, yeah, and you know, you, you learn different things along the way. So from different people, that was a completely different kind of environment. Uh, much more wine-focused, but also much smaller. So whereas Danielle is very big, and as a back waiter, even a lounge server, you don't really have that much opportunity to interact with the wines. And, and that was something that was very different at Veritas, where we would have auction, pre-auction parties all of the time. And during this time, I was also getting to, I was going to a lot of those things at Crew as well, because Crew was open, and this was, you know, the before the the market fell and you know it was just the um, the wines that were open and the access to getting to try them was was really exciting um and, and you were dating robert and i was dating robert exactly and, and how did you meet we met we met at wd50 so we met probably the first day the restaurant was open um robert Bohr comes in robert Bohr comes in and robert Bohr was one of you know a at a at a hot new restaurant opening, everybody who comes in basically for the first week is a is a very important person either in the industry or to the restaurant or both. Um, so he was one of many you know very important uh, PXs coming in, and um, and yeah, I think my my world was so. Um, yeah, it was just, it was a moment of, of so much excitement because there were so many, I was getting to meet so many different people. Um, so I, I met Robert, but I didn't, and we got to know each other, I would say, better over the next few months. So um, our first date was actually the James Beard Awards. Wow, that's pretty cool. It was very cool. Yeah, this would have been 2003. Um, so we went to the James Beard Awards and then we went out for dinner with a big group of people, including Paul Greco, who, um, who I met. Actually, before I met Robert, because Paul and Marco Canora came in when I was at Topo. So Topo closed and then reopened under different ownership as Hearth. So I met uh, Paul and Marco when they were shopping for, for Hearth. Uh, but we had dinner, and then Robert and I went out for a beer um, at DBA, and it was very sweet because... The beer uh, was sweet? The beer was... In fact, the beer was sweet. It was Lambic. It was Framboise, the Lindemans. The beer was the beer was definitely sweet. And so was our conversation, um, just because, you know, an event 
event like the James Beard Awards is very exciting, um, but it's also not really a, a time where you get to know somebody. And so he he made a point of saying, look, I, I really want to get some time to know you a little bit better. Let's go for a beer. And that was our first date. And um, and we went out on a, a couple of dates or three dates, and then I moved back to Colorado. Um, and... And then, um, so we didn't actually really start dating. We went on some dates, but then we, we stopped doing that. And, um, and then we really didn't start dating again until I moved back to New York. And, um, yeah, but he's, he was just always a, a wonderful person in my life, this person that I could um, call and ask for perspective on the industry or that I would bounce thoughts or ideas off of. And then once I was back in New York, this... He was always so generous. He's so generous with so many people, but he was certainly generous with me in terms of trying different wines that are really tough to get a hold of and um, and that sort of thing. You told me one time that like he introduced you to Batali and there was a... Yes. Well, how, how did that go again? Okay, this was like, this was when I was moved... No, this was when I did that. The, the, so I took a week. I took my like spring break vacation week from culinary school and came to New York for these stages. And Robert and I had dinner together at Lupa. Where he had worked. Where he had worked and which he had helped open. And so we had dinner together. Um, it was like a Sunday night. And it was, in fact, it was Oscar Sunday night. So we go and we have dinner. And it for me, that was actually the, the moment where I knew that I had fallen in love with him because, uh, because we just connected in different ways that we hadn't before. So we're having this great conversation. And then Mario Batali and Mark Ladner walk in. Sure, and, and Mark Ladner's the uh, chef at Del Posto, now, but, but he used to be chef de cuisine at Lupo. Exactly, exactly. So they they come in, and you know they're hard to miss. So um, they sit at the bar, and they start, and it, you know, we can just see that they're having this really intense, passionate conversation, and um, we can't really tell what it's about, but it doesn't matter because we're only on our pasta course and whatever. So you know, fast forward, dinner ends, and uh, we go over, and Robert. Um, introduces me to Mark and Mario, and they stop their argument for a moment, and um, and you know we get to say hello, and then Robert has to go to this Oscar party, but they say, hey, you don't have to go to that Oscar party. Do you want to hang out with us for a while? We're going to this place, the Spotted Pig, which had just opened, and um, and so I hang out with them for a while, and what that meant was that I was I got to be like part of this argument. I got to be like a fly on the wall of this argument. And this argument had, it was the same one that they had started, you know, an hour before. And it ended up going to like three in the morning. And and so the argument is uh, about the pasta dish, cacio e pepe, which, um, so Mark, as the chef of Lupa, had gotten bored of the recipe and he had added Meyer lemon zest. And Mario had found out about it and had and he was livid because you don't get to just mess around with a recipe. And Mark's argument was, look, I cook the same thing all the time. It's a fine recipe, but I've made it better. I added my lemon zest. It is a better tasting dish now. And who can argue with that? And so, you know, of course, you can see both sides of this argument and it, and it goes on and on. And then we go, uh, we get into a cab and it's still going on. And then we, we go to the spotted pig and up at the time that was before there was the third floor of the pig. And so um, the the third floor existed, but it was like file cabinets and this like old couch. And, um, and there was some like some wine that they opened up. So it's now there are like four other people who work at the pig and we're all up there. And this argument is still going on in there. You know, it's just so passionate and vehement. And, um, and then we go and we have dinner downstairs. It was like long after the, the restaurant would have closed. So this was like two in the morning, probably. 
and maybe three. And, um, and, and it took until the end of dinner for Mark to say, okay, look, I get your point. Uh, it's not my restaurant. Whether or not I think the dish is better with my lemon is not the point. Fine. I'll take it off and I'll change it. And, and it was just interesting to be a part of that conversation, I guess, as a, you know, because what's cooler than, than getting to hang out with Mario Batali and Mark Ladner the night before. So this was the night before my three day stage at Danielle. And, um, and uh, yeah, it was a great little insight into the amount of passion that's required to be in this industry. And also, um, the importance of details and also, you know, rules, rules are important. Rules are important. So what was your next job after Veritas? After Veritas, it was uh, Nick and Tony's. Mm. That's right. I forgot about that. In yeah. the Hamptons. In the Hamptons, yeah. And what was that experience like? Uh, it was awesome. So that was my first experience as a sommelier. And Bonnie Munchen, who's the general manager. Jen, I heard she's awesome. She's incredible. She really is. So she became like a second mother. Um, and she gave me a shot. So she gave me a shot. Um, when I definitely didn't have uh, much experience in New York. But I think um, one thing she said is that you have a lot of enthusiasm and you're willing to do the work, and that's important. Um, so I, I took that job. And, a lot of really good wine people come through there. Uh, amazing, amazing. So this would have been 2007, summer of 2007. And, yeah, I mean, people would bring in their own bottles, but the list was excellent, and, um, and I, I learned a lot about... The other thing that was great about Bonnie is that once once she hires you, she trusts you to do a good job and to experiment and to and to learn and make mistakes and learn from them. And actually, that's one thing that um, that that David Chang and that that the Momofuku restaurants um, embody also. And I think it's such a smart way to. Um, yeah, to create loyalty among people who who work with the group. Um, but yeah, Bonnie was amazing, and I would get to try things like, you know, serving decanters wrapped in foil, or you know, you would, you just got to you got to play around with what language worked and what language didn't, and um, and try amazing wines along the way. Um, learned something about Italian wines up to that point. Really, the only exposure I had was French wines. And also at Veritas and at Crew and at Danielle, most of the wines that I had exposure to were, were fancy wines. And so this was my first sort of opportunity to play around a little bit with wines that were less expensive and wines that were from Italy and wines that were from quirkier regions. And that was great. And But eventually you swung back to the, to the Manhattan I did, yeah. So I went first to Harvest. So I guess Harvests have also been something I've been really lucky to, to do. And that one started um, right after, let's see. So the first Harvest was at Domaine de Larlo in Burgundy. Second one was with Alix de Monti in Marceau. Um, so I went Nick and Tony is to uh, Marceau and then to... Um, and then to 11 Madison Park, actually, it was a guy at uh, Nick and Tony's who said, what are you doing after you get back from Harvest? And I said, I don't know. And he said, um, I'm going to call my friend and uh, I want you to interview with the Union Square Hospitality Group because I think you'd be perfect there. And so that was how um, that was how my interview came about. And um, and that was a, you know, they're so nice. Everyone says this, but they're, it's such a, it's such a really kind, thoughtful and empowering company. Um, and they said, you know, if you could work anywhere in our company, where would it be? And I said, well, you know, I'm really inspired by what is happening at 11 Madison Park. And they said, okay, we're going to 
you know, set up some interviews. And then the next week I had interviews at 11 Madison Park. And then I was staging on the, and, you know, doing my trail. And then I was hired. And you were working with John Reagan. I did. I got to work with John Reagan. And what was that like? Um, he is an extraordinary teacher. He really is. And he's not, sometimes it's tough love. In fact, a lot of times, especially back then, it was tough love. And that that's a good lesson, especially it was a great counterpoint because Nick and Tony's was, was um, I had so few rules. And then 11 Madison was a different kind of thing. And I think that that was really important. It's good to have an understanding of both. Um, John is extremely good with systems and so is Will. I think that, that, I mean, that 11 Madison Park, the 11 Madison Park I remember and know and love is, you know, with John running the wine program and Will running the restaurant and Will and Daniel and then Daniel in the kitchen, of course, but, um, amazing thought towards systems, the same kind of thing. So like back to that argument between Batali and, and, um, and Mark Ladner, we would have, we would have really long conversations about the smallest, what seems <clears throat> like the smallest details, but that sort of thought led to um, really impenetrable systems. Um, and I, that was great. And then John, John, and you've said this on the podcast before, but John does such a good job of balancing benchmarks with wines that are much quirkier and wines that are um, that are less familiar to a lot of people. Um, but, but they're always delicious, and he he's excellent with pairings. I learned a lot about pairings from um, from that because we, we always had the tasting menu, and John would um, send us a copy of the tasting menu, and then he would he would ask everybody to submit three ideas for different wines that might go with each dish, and then he would sort of filter out what he thought would probably work, and we would try as a group four or five wines with every different course, and sometimes it was the wine that you you imagined would work and it was perfect. And other times it was the wine that you would imagine least would work, or sometimes it was none of those wines at all. And we would just keep looking. Um, but a really, really thoughtful guy. And how did your thought process change about pairing wine with food? Um, how did it change about pairing wine with food? Okay. I guess I had no, ac I had no exposure to change to pairing wine with food before. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that was, that was my first exposure. But one of the things that he does Okay, so um, he would look for, I think, because you know, when you're talking about pairings, you can look at it from a structural standpoint or from a flavor standpoint. And I don't know if John would agree with me on this uh, observation, but I would say most of the time he was looking at, most of the time we would look for flavors in the wine that would match flavors in the dish, making sure that uh, structurally and texturally they would they would marry as well. But like one one of the brilliant pairings was um, was this foie gras dish with pineapple, and he chose a Tircula Gravier Montbalziac and this particular vintage. Balzi. Yes, I think it was 2003, but it tasted like pineapple. So you're drinking a wine that tastes like pineapple with this foie gras dish that has this caramelized pineapple on it, and it was brilliant. It was so good. Um, and then there were other less surprising pairings. or, um, But, yeah, no, he, he was just everything was so thoughtfully done. I think that attention to detail was um, something I was really lucky to to have exposure to and to learn from. And what happened after that? You you. You left 11 Madison, and where'd you go? 
Where did I go after 11 Madison? After 11 Madison, I went to Harvest again. Um, where did I go? To Harvest? To Burgundy? Moon Rage uh, Ebook, maybe. No, that was, that was 2012. Ah, sorry. Yep. I get them all confused. No, I think this was the year I got to bop around a little bit um, between Rumier and La Fon. Oh, okay, okay. So that was good. And then um, 09 was Dujac. 010 was Comte Ligier Belair, who is hysterical. Um, 11 was the year I did not go to Harvest in Burgundy because we were opening Crown. So I went to Patagonia with Piero and Chisa, and that was awesome. And then 12 was um, Munir Ejiborg. But dialing back to um, after 11 Madison, so I was at 11 Madison twice. So 11 Madison on the wine team. And then I went to Gilt at the New York Palace because they were, um, they had just gotten a new chef, Justin Bogle. They had just hired Patrick Capiello to be the wine director. Smart guy. Smart guy, very smart guy. And so I got to work with Patrick and this was actually a bar manager position. And um, and so I felt like it would be a good, yeah, I wanted to learn more about spirits and cocktails and I felt like it would be important and that this was a, a good, a, an interesting next move. Um, and so that was where I went after after Eleven Madison, and then I just always kept in touch with with Eleven Madison and with Will Gadara in particular. And and um, and before the Four Stars came out, he said, "Look, I think I, I just I, I have a feeling that we're going to need a, a bigger management team. Will you consider coming to join it?" And um, Will's a really persuasive guy, and he's also one of the smartest leaders that I've ever been able to work with. He has a vision, and he has a game plan on how to execute that vision. And so, um, so I went back, and I got to work with him on the management team at Eleven Medicine, and that was that was also awesome. But it was during that time where um, I got to work on the floor, but not directly with wine or sometimes with wine. If we, if, if um, people that I knew came in and had requ special requests or if it was a, an especially busy wine night, then I would always get to help out with wine. But um, and, and I noticed that when I did, that was where there were so many people who were curious and seemed to be intimidated by wine. They loved the stories, they loved the wine, but they were unsure how to talk about wine, how to ask for what they liked, or they would say, you know, I like this wine, but I don't know why I like it. Can you can you tell me why I like this wine? And can you tell me what other wines I might like? And I think now that's, that's really well known and everybody sort of, I think there's so much attention, which is awesome, to making wine accessible and to making the language of wine accessible. But for me, I think maybe because I have that literature background, the language part was something that I really found helpful when I was learning about wine. How do you talk about wine? And once you have that piece, then it's so then it's so much less intimidating. And so that was where the idea for uh, for Bellis started was at the floor on the floor at Eleven Madison Park. I remember thinking that, you know, so much of not being able to really cogently talk about wine reminded me so much of how I used to talk about what I was looking for in uh, like a spouse or a, a, like a, a girlfriend. <laughs> I would be like, like just talking about things that didn't matter right. or that I didn't really care about, but right. seemed so important right. at the time. Totally. I was like, you know, I really want her to like certain kinds of movies and <laughs> I hope she's read like books, like good books, like Sherlock Holmes or something. And you're like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, I hope she likes cupcakes with red frosting. And like, none of these attributes that you're, you're ascribing to this like perfect mate 
actually have anything to do with like reality later. 100%. When you when you actually find that person, you're like, you know, you don't like the cupcakes, but that's fine. Like, you know, I don't even so care about the cupcakes anymore. Once you right. taste the wine, you're like, you know, I know I told you I wanted to dry wine, but this tastes good to me. Right. Like that kind of thing. You know, so many so. people I find like so that dry is like one of the most confusing terms. It seems like for no doubt who don't work in our industry. Like I like a dry wine, but then they actually like a wine from California that has a lot of residual sugar in it. And so I think it's, it's, it's really, it's like setting it up. It's like being like, I used to think like, Oh, you know, I wanted me to grow with brown hair. Like, what does that matter <laughs> to anybody? You know, so especially true. when you marry an Asian girl. Anyway, I sort of wish I could find my old diaries from like, you know, when you're third, I don't know if do, do guys keep diaries or this is this strictly a girl thing. I tried to a couple of times, but I didn't, I'm sure yeah. dudes do. I just didn't. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I always felt like Doogie Hauser every time, right. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? And, about that uh, show yep yep um anyway so you you worked at crown and it was like kind of your first wine program like yeah. that you were running that you were doing it was it was upper east side it was a nice building yeah. what happened it was and it was the first list that i got to build and that was really cool how'd it uh, go down how'd it go down okay so how did it go down i had been helping out a little bit part-time at the lion and then I took that, I took my advanced test and passed it. And then the week later, I got back and heard that um, Crown was looking for a wine director. And um, yeah, and it seemed like a really cool opportunity. I think it's a group that has very a very different vision and very different values from... 11 Madison Park. Let's say 11 Madison Park. Exactly. So it must have been a nice contrast. You're like, oh, okay. Well, it was definitely, it was definitely a contrast. Um, but yeah, I think the thing that was really attractive to me was that they said, look, um, we don't really know all that much about wine and uh, here's your budget and you can do whatever you want. We want it to be old world and uh, we want it to be mostly classic regions. And you're like, you know, I've been to Burgundy. Yeah, then boom, go. And by the way, we don't want to pay you overtime. You're going to be hourly and you're not allowed to work more than 40 hours a week. Oh, really? Oh, perfect. At first they didn't say that, but it was like, you know. That's an amazing gift. It was an amazing gift. Like with gift. a bow tie. Exactly. And at first it didn't happen that way at first because I was the only person on the wine program. So there was. I've no, actually never heard of anything like that was before in my entire career. incredible. And, you know, I got my first couple of paychecks and they were like, um, you're not allowed to work this much anymore. I was like, all right. If I don't work this much, then these five things aren't going to happen. Right. And they're like, all right, we don't really care. Just don't ever work more than 40 hours a week. And I was like, all right. You know, I worked 41 hours last week. Do you mind if I go to Austria next week or two weeks from now or whatever? And they're like, no, go, go to Austria. <laughs> so I got to travel a ton during that year. Um, I went to Bordeaux. I went to Patagonia. I went to Austria. I went to Burgundy. I went, you know, I got to see a lot of places. Um but it was, I would say, before I started traveling. Um, and by the time I was traveling, I had been able to hire some other people. So that was great. Um, but it was really fun. It was really fun. It's really creative. I didn't realize how creative writing a list was. It's sort of like writing anything. It's You, know, you are putting an expression of your beliefs into print. And that's what a list is. Was it kind of a return to you to the idea that it had gotten in originally of like doing something with publishing? And that's what it felt like. It did. And I think in, in certain ways, yes. I mean, I think the list at Crown was, it was six pages. It was pretty short. It was, but I tried to incorporate. There was a lot of stuff on there. There was a lot of stuff on there. Yeah. And it was, and it was 
fun to see. I think the other thing that I hadn't realized, because when you're a sommelier on the floor, then you are getting to open and taste all these bottles that have been curated by somebody else um, most of the time. And then this was the first time that, um, that you know. You could follow it all the way through. Exactly. You picked it. And yeah. you're like, there's something that you like more about the wines you pick. Exactly. And you also know more about the wines that you don't pick and you know why you don't pick them and you know what else is out there and you're able to have, your spectrum just grows tenfold. And you can go to more tastings because that's your yes, job to do and exactly. buyers come by with samples. Exactly, exactly. Were there organizational things that you picked up along the way? Were you like, oh, now I understand why John Reagan is a genius because he yes. did this well totally, or whatever. Totally, totally. Uh, yeah, and I think also like, I mean, the, um, I think, you know, pricing for a list is also, that's also an art. You know, it's not like you just take a bottle and you mark it up 2.15 or, you know, 3 point, whatever it is, whatever your markup is, it's not, it's, it's not that, um, it's not that systematic. There are reasons why certain bottles, you know, obtain a higher price tag or if they're not replaceable, you know, so I guess understanding that game and that dynamic is very important. Um, no, Crown was Crown was actually really good in a lot of ways. Um, the the people who came in, it was it was a really interesting mix of people. There were people in the neighborhood, um, who actually one of my favorite guys was a guy who would come in. He, he lived like two doors down, and he would order either a bottle of Bordeaux. He loved Bordeaux, or he would order one single glass of Trian Rosé, and he would palm me in two dollar bills or pens like like click pens that had his company logo on it so anytime he came in i would get one of those things and it, there was that kind of quirkiness that just it's kind of like going to dave and buster's <laughs> exactly you know you turn in your tickets you're like can i get a clicky pen today and it came in like a pretend felt case it was really it was pretty awesome how many of those do you still have i think i have one of them left yeah. <laughs> so now you're at the Momofuku Group. You're overseeing all the New York restaurants for David Chang, mm -hmm. and he's a famous guy. And what's what's that like? And how's it been? He's amazing. He's amazing. He, uh, the group is really awesome. Um, I'm really happy to be part of that group right now. Um, yeah, I just have so much admiration for um, their creativity and for the way that they run their business. And um, I would say when when I first had this conversation, it was like actually just right after, it was the week after I had sort of been looking. So I was initially going to open Charlie Bird and, um, and I was thinking, you know, this is going to be a lot of time. And I love Robert so much. And I think we have a... Because Robert's opening, his open yeah, Charlie Bird. And exactly. you were thinking to work with him. And it's so great. Well, yeah, no, I mean, that was always the plan was to work together there. And then it's not a, a giant space. And I think, you know, it's a, it's the kind of thing where um, it's it's really good that we both have different spaces. I think it's it's probably... Probably better if you work together at Danielle, which is gigantic. And well, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it was really, really right after that. It was the, the next week. Um, we were out in California. Um, Wells Guthrie at Copan Wines was oh, sure. hosting a dinner. Um, and David was cooking the dinner with, with his team. And uh, and he said, "Hey, what are you what are you up to?" And that started the conversation. And then, um, yeah, the conversation went. I wasn't sure that that was going to be the right fit. I wanted to know a lot more about the company and what the expectations were and what the plan was. Um, and 
And uh, everything, every conversation, I think we had like four or five long conversations after that back in New York. And, um, and everything reinforced that our values were really aligned, which was, which was really cool. Um, as I got to meet the other people that work with the group, they're all passionate, smart, focused, uh, dedicated people that are really inspiring um, for me. And uh, let's see, what else? Oh, the other thing, the thing that he talks about all the time is that it's important to make mistakes. You have to try things uh, and see what works and see what doesn't. But if you are not willing to take those risks, you're never going to innovate. And innovation is is really important. I mean, you look at um, for at least for for David and for the group, and and I fall in the same category. But you look at like Milk Bar, or you look at Booker and Dax, and all these and Lucky Peach, and all these projects, and all these businesses that that are part of Momofuku. And um, yeah, I think it's a really exciting place to be, and there's not any place that I would rather be than well, there. What's it like on the wine side? On the wine side, okay. So I feel like we're still at the beginning of that. I'm now five months in. Um, and we have different sort of a different game plan for all the restaurants where we, we've put some changes into motion. So at, at Noodle Bar, for example, we're doing, um, so Nilu Modomed, I have to give her credit for this name, which she named Biggie Smalls, because what we're doing is we are pouring all, um, all wines by the glass are out of Magnum. And then we've added a few half bottles as well. And the point with that was, okay, it should be fun and it should be out of the best format possible and the wine should be delicious. If we're only offering six, they should be great um, and they should be out of Magnum. So that was that was the by the glass part. And then um, there, are a, there are actually a surprising amount of people who come into Noodle Bar and they love wine and they want to drink either a great glass of wine or even a half bottle because it's usually not an exp- – you don't usually go to Noodle Bar if you want – uh, if you want to linger and it's not a long dinner yeah it's not a long dinner you go to co or you go to mapesh or sambar but um so people are like i don't want to order a bottle because i'm not going to finish it yeah exactly so um yeah or you, you just wouldn't even think about ordering a bottle exactly it's just so anyway we put on some half bottles that have been um, really successful which is great um and then mapesh i would say is where we're spending a lot of the focus so um, Mapesh is the restaurant that actually has a really big wine cellar. So a lot of what we've been doing, sort of a la Jean Regan, is um, putting in systems, getting wine racks for for the cellar, and just building the cellar. So right now we are still building the list. Um, if you go into Mapesh, there's a list, but it's not representative of everything that's in the cellar. And we should have our actual list that... Um, and the, the the hope for that or the inspiration for that is look you know we have access to all of these incredibly talented designers and um, we have we have an entire publishing operation that's part of the company um, but also there's there's a rich literary uh, tradition in Midtown so like the Algonquin Roundtable used to happen a block and a half away um, so I've been like reading up on my F Scott Fitzgerald and um, those. Those uh, actually, there's some really great advice. If you if you Google F. Scott Fitzgerald advice to his daughter Scottina, there's one of the most beautiful um, fatherly pieces of fatherly advice that I've that I've ever read. It's just he was good with the letters. I mean, he he wrote you know a couple of things to aspiring writers that were very yes sen- yes you know yeah sensical. Uh, what was her name? Frances Turnbull and oh maybe yeah she was like the family friend and he he said. 
you, I'm not going to give you advice on this piece of writing because I'm not going to give it that time. But here's what I will tell you. Like being a professional writer requires a lot more than you seem to be willing to invest with your heart right now. You need to pour your entire heart out into your writing if you're going to, if this is really what you want to do, because you're young and you don't have the tricks of the trade the yet. The tricks, yeah. 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 And then later you can have the tricks, but now later you got to do the heart. Exactly. Which is with everything, I think. So how how do you think about pairing wine with David's food? Okay. Um, great question. So at Mapesh, actually, I was just working on this two days ago. Um, there's a, a sort of a restaurant within a restaurant called Capo, um, and it's great. Paul Carmichael's the chef, and his food is um, – so David gives a lot of autonomy to all the different chefs. Um, Capo – how do I pair wine with David's food? All right. First of all, I think David's food is hard to put in a box because because of the autonomy that the other chefs are given. Um, and like, for example, at Mopesh, we're doing a short rib dinner now. So that will be, that's like, it pairs great with champagne and white burgundy or Riesling and Chablis and Bordeaux or Brunello de Montalcino. So there's that piece. Um, but I think as with anything, um, I, I guess I look for... I look for, how should I say this? Um, I try not to limit myself and, and exist in a box. And like the way that we did this a couple of nights ago is we literally went into the cellar and pulled a bunch of different things that we thought could potentially work. And a lot of the time the, the results were surprising. But one of my favorite pairings was, um, do you know the wine 25 Reasons? I do. The sparkling Sauvignon Blanc. That is insane with this dish of ramen. So it's a ramen dish with fresh corn and, um, and lardon and nori and jalapeno. Because you have the pyrazine in the wine, but you also have this sort of earthy naturalist natural wine element you have these sort of umami flavors and they pick right up on the umami in the dish um so i guess that would be an an example of looking for flavors that overlap but also balance so i think it's important not to have too many of one thing or another you don't want too many sweet wines or too many sparkling wines unless that's the mission like we've been toying around with the idea of an all sparkling pairing at co um not not instead of the current pairing, but in addition to. Um, I think there's a lot of creativity within that within that space. You know, there are, there are some really beautiful. One of my favorite pairings at Co right now is um, the Martinol um, Blanquette de Limoux with the foie gras dish, the shaved foie gras with the lychee. It just goes so well. Um, yeah, but there's beer and there's champagne, and so we're toying around with that. Um, but I think with anything you want, you want flexibility. You want um, you want surprise. You want a little bit of surprise, and you also want people to to feel like they're getting a great value. So I think, um, and for me, so much of my background is these classics. So I think it's important to not ignore them and to and to actually give them a more 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 space. Um, especially at Mapesh, we're bringing in a lot of of wines from Burgundy, from Bordeaux. Um, yeah, because they make sense in that neighborhood and with that food. Who are some of the other people that have kind of brought you through in your career in New York? I mean, it seems like you have strong relationships with several mentor-type people. I mean, Kate Grader would come to mind or maybe yeah. Tori Birch. I mean, who are some of the people that have kind of inspired or brought you through in oh. your travels in New York? Wow. Okay. Yeah. No, I feel really lucky in that regard. So, um, okay. Well, I'll say Robert because he's, he's the obvious one. Um, but certainly Kate Crater, I would say Dana Cowan as well. Um, these are people who, you know, I've had 
who have who have been open to sharing advice um, at crossroads or um, or not at crossroads and just in life in general. And I'm, I'm very grateful to that. So let's see from the wine perspective. Um, gosh, there are so many people. So, um, Tim Kopeck has always been great. Patrick Capiello. Um, I would say who else, who else? Danielle. I mean, Danielle, I should put Danielle at the top of the list. Um, cause I feel like, you know, you always get that one shot from someone who doesn't need to give you a shot. And, and Danielle was that person. Um, I would say, um, let's see. Yes, Tori Birch, certainly, and also Terry McCullough, who runs Tori Birch's foundation. So Terry um, runs the foundation, which which gives money to um, women entrepreneurs and their families domestically through microfinance and mentorship. And that's just a cause that I, I believe deeply in and that I'm really inspired by. Um, so that, I would say... Um, who, gosh, there's, I mean, I would say I would put you in this category. You, you dragged me around to a lot of tastings when I was a busboy, you know, and that exposure was really helpful later on. Um, Will Guidara, huge, huge mentor. John Reagan, huge mentor. Um, who else? I feel like I, I feel like I am really lucky to get to work with people who I, who I would like to be mentored by or who at least I know will, will have really sound insight. Um, so that's, that's been great. Um, I would say in Burgundy, there are a lot of people, um, I would need to say, um, Jeremy and Diana Sace for sure. I would need to say Christophe Rumier. I would need to say, um, Dominique Lafon and Alix de Monti and Jean-Marc Rouleau. Um, pretty much it, you know, you go over there and you see this, um, this connection to history and this connection to, um, and this, and this conviction in tradition, um, and those things are very, very meaningful. I think, you know, that puts everything in context. So, you, you know, in New York, New York is so fast paced and, and, you know, your day is filled with, with 47 obligations, but when you're in Burgundy or when you're in, I'm sure any, any one region, um, you, there's a humility that you have, um, a much closer, that, that's much, that's much, it feels, let's see, how do I say that? In Burgundy, your day is slower and you are required to, to really think through every step of what you're doing and, uh, and think about the reason behind it. And, and it just is not, it naturally happens that you think about why you're there and, and all these other, like, um, I guess Jean-Louis Chauve would be a great example. You, you know, walking up the hill of Hermitage with Jean-Louis Chauve and he, or even in Saint-Joseph in Lamp where he's just replanted a bunch of vines. Um, and he always says, and I think actually Eric Asimov wrote a great piece about this a couple of weeks ago, but he's not planting those vines for himself. He's not even planting them for his children. He's planting them for his children's children. And that context is very meaningful. It, it puts everything into perspective. And that's, um, that, that, yeah. You have your own wine project that you started up. I do. Uh, maybe you should tell us a little bit about that. About Bellis. Um, okay, so Bellis is, um, yeah, Bellis is still a baby. I think Bellis is a baby, but the the, uh, the reason I wanted to start it is, I guess, twofold. One is that um, every time I had a conversation with people who were not in the industry, they wanted to know more about wine. They wanted to know why they liked certain wines, sort of like we were talking about earlier, and I felt like I could... Um, the thing that I could offer would be to, um, 
to make the language accessible and to just visually put it out there. And so um, through you know, studying wine, there are, of course, lots of different ways of looking about wine, but the way that I like to sort of break it down, if you had to break it down into two camps, would be the um, flavors and also the, the structural elements. And so it seems like whenever you pick up a random bottle of wine and you read the back, it talks about all the fruits and the secondary flavors that you'll you'll get from that bottle, but it doesn't talk about the structure. And that is a huge piece of why you either like or don't like wine or why a wine will or will not work with with um, with a pairing with food. And so I felt like it would be helpful um, to create a little graphic icon that that sort of broke that down. So we made a little palette table that me and my mom came up with. And it um, it sort of looks like a consumer reports chart. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just says like as- acidity, body, minerality, oak, um, complexity, and then there are like five circles. So it's if it's very high in acidity, it might be four out of five filled circles. Um, so that was part of the inspiration was just making that language accessible, um, but also. Um, I felt like one thing that I could do, and this is where where Tori has been and was extremely um, extremely helpful and encouraging, is um, is I think in in New York we all live in in a little bit of a bubble, at least in our in our wine world. So um, breaking out of that, people don't have access to these wines or to these quirkier wines or this this. Um, that the things that we take for granted, the pieces of knowledge that we've acquired along the way, they we shouldn't take that for granted. Or the, the people, a lot of people in the rest of the country don't have access to those kind of um, wines or that kind of story or that kind of information. And so I feel like I could um, I could put together some of the friendships that I had along the way. So one of them was with um, Alix de Monti. That's our most recent release, is the Roche Sir, and um, and we wanted to just sort of focus on duality. So it's a blend of wine or blend of Chardonnay grapes from parcels one parcel in Pouligny Morchet and one from Merceau, um, and we just made 216 cases. Um, but yeah, so that's been going really well. And then we also donate a percentage of proceeds to the Tory Birch Foundation. Um, yeah. I'm excited always to hear what you're up to. Thank you very much for sharing your time on the show today. Thank you so much. Jordan a- Salcido of Bellis and the Monfuco Group. Thank you. Thank you, Levy. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothat, P-O-D.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.